Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello everyone and welcome to the patron mailbag episode for the October international break on the Manchester United weekly podcast. I am sat with a very large cup of tea in hand in a Guinness mug like the kind of sports direct mugs that uh, used to get those huge ones but with a lovely Guinness pelican on, on the front of it. Warm cup of tea, the Manchester winter is closing in it feels, temperature dropped significantly today. I'm also sat with my microphone resting on uh, the first copy that I've seen of my book that's coming out on Monday, The Men Who Made Manchester United. And to top it all off, to make this a, a fine early Saturday evening, Jack, as we've sat down, some fairly big news came out about the future of Manchester United, which we'll come on to very shortly. But it's nice to be back doing one of these Patreon mailbag episodes, isn't it? Again, a, a time to uh, calm down a little bit after a very frantic start to United season and a very frantic few weeks since we lasted one of these. And yeah, some lovely questions coming up. How have you been enjoying the international break thus far? Yeah, it's been all right. I haven't watched really any football, I'll be honest. Yep. <laughs> it's been a, sort of a nice little break. It's been a very dreary and grey week here for me. So just sort of sitting down, staying warm. Feels like winter is is fully coming and the football season is about to really ramp up into full swing. Yeah, until another international break in November. Yeah. Which I feel like I don't remember happening a few years ago, but I might be completely wrong. Obviously, international breaks were all messed up by the 2022 World Cup. So I feel like my I'm, I'm slightly off kilter in terms of my instincts towards the football schedule. I feel like my whole my whole view of in the international schedule has been messed up from the Nations League too because that sort of accelerated. Yeah, that's true, yeah. It sort of concentrated all the qualifiers into a shorter time period as well. Yeah, that's very true. Just as we sat down, some news came out, as I say. It's unconfirmed, but it feels as confirmed as, as it can be at this stage. And perhaps when you're listening, you'll have a bit more clarity or maybe will have realised that it was a ploy all along. Maybe. But as things stand, reports indicate that a Qatari bid to take over Manchester United is no more. Sheikh Yassim is said to be pulling out. And one of our patrons, Ethan, has been quick on the ball. He's sent in this question, which we're going to start with. Ethan says, I hope this isn't too late, but what's your thoughts on the breaking news? It never really felt right for us to be owned by them. He's talking about the Qataris and, and the Sheikh Yassim bid. However, the fact that they've rejected that sort of money, I think now he's talking about the Glazers, is a huge concern for the future. As if they won't accept that sort of money when the club's in the state it is, then when will they? Will they ever? I would take... Sir Jim Ratcliffe with a view to take over fully in the next few years but no guarantee that even that happens neither option were great but the most important thing is them no longer having control this has always been such a conflicted issue and it was that dismay when finally after 18 years or 17 years when they announced it last year but 18 years now finally it seemed that we were to be 
free of the Glazer ownership at Manchester United. And then when it came round, so bad in our opinion, and other people have different opinions, but certainly mine, and, and you can speak for yours in a second, so bad was one of the options on offer that you thought, actually, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, it's, it's a horrible scenario where whatever happens here, our club and, and Manchester United are being used for other means. But this is, for me, an enormous sense of relief. I don't, in the same way that when the Glazers released that statement back in November 2022, I didn't really believe it then. And with good reason, because nearly a year on, little has actually changed. I won't believe it for, I don't think it'll sink in for a while, but I was very concerned about the prospect of a Qatari-led bid taking over Manchester United. And I would have felt a huge disconnect with the club that many people felt in 2005 when the Glazers took over. But I think this FC United and Manchester, the club who broke away in 2005 when the Glazers took over, talk about there being a line in the sand for Manchester United fans, at, at which point eventually they cross that line and realise they can't do it anymore and they become FC United fans. Now, not all United fans who feel disconnected with the club do that, but I this this would, I think, have been my line in the sand. So a great sense of relief. How about you? Well, there's a an immediate view and a bigger picture way of looking at this, I think. And yeah. the immediate view is good, in my opinion. You know, I we've, we've been very clear, both of us kind of share the same views on this, that we never wanted Qatari ownership of Man United. And like, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there that for me, it wasn't necessarily anything about Qatar in particular, more just, I don't like the idea of our football club being used as a means to further yeah. some greater thing. You know, the football club should exist for itself. It should exist for the community that it serves, both in and around Manchester and also for the fans all around the world. It shouldn't be used for a purpose larger than that or to further someone else's desires. The sort of longer term view is a lot more negative because despite the fact that I'm pleased that it seems like the prospect of being owned by Qatar won't be happening, it also signals, as Ethan mentioned in his question, that the Glazers probably aren't going to be selling at all. And that I don't is, know if it does. That's not really news. I think we've... Uh, the way I read it is they... <laughs> there is clearly kind of disagreement within the Glazer family. And it, it feels like three or four of the siblings are keen to cash out and get as much money as they can as they do so. And Joel and Avram who have always been more involved with the running of United day-to-day -day than Ed, Darcy or the others, seem hesitant to give up the status and the excitement of being an owner of Manchester United. And I can see why, as much as I might disagree with everything they stand for. And so I expect, I, I don't think Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who is known as this kind of ruthless businessman, would still be here 11 months down the line if he didn't think there was a chance that he would become United owner in the next couple of years. Now, whether that comes in the form of initial minority ownership, but a say in how the clubs run before eventually taking over the Glazers ownership entirely, I don't know. I don't know what form that comes in, but it, it doesn't seem right that Ratcliffe would still be in here if he didn't think he had a chance. He, it's from everything we've read about him and we've been told about, that's not how, it's not how he operates even if there's a little more emotion in this because he's a Failsworth-born United fan and whatever. So I don't read this I guess I as... guess the point you're making there, but I, I think in I think in the same way that the the status that comes with owning Man United is what's keeping Joel and Avram Glazer around, I think you can make that same argument for saying why 
Jim Ratcliffe is hanging around yes. too, even if the signals that he's getting maybe aren't the best. You know, especially as a you know a childhood Man United fan, the the lure of owning Man United and having that much of a say in how the club is run and potentially being the person to kind of bring it back to its former glory is massive. And I think that would cloud your judgment and probably make Jim Ratcliffe make decisions and hang around longer than he would do in the business world. That's true. I, I suspect what's probably ways, happening buddy, is, is probably that- why any commentary yeah. on this is, is difficult. I suspect what is probably happening is that Jim Ratcliffe is getting some kind of positive science behind the scenes because the Glazers want to kind of keep the options open because it does seem like, yeah. I think the one thing in this that, that is sort of well known from all the reporting is that there is this divide within the Glazer family between all the siblings. So I imagine that so Jim Ratcliffe is probably getting some amount of positive signals still from some siblings of the Glazer family to, to keep this option on the table. But to be honest, I think from where I'm sitting now, it seems to me like the statement that was put out almost a year ago now when they said that they were going to seek was it strategic alternatives to the running of the club? Strategic review. Strategic, yeah. yeah, it seems like that yeah. statement was put out maybe a little bit too quickly Premature, before yeah. there was actually any agreement among the siblings what that meant and what the options on the table were going to look like. Yeah, definitely. I think my instinct, and I'm no business reporter, I don't know the inner workings of the two bids or the Glazer family or anything, but just as a, an engaged supporter and whatever. My instinct now is there's likely two options left because the Glazer family cannot afford to run, carry on running United in, in this manner because the financials are getting worse and investment is needed in infrastructure. That, that much has been admitted by them is I think the two options are probably the Glazers find significant investment from a, a hedge fund or an investment fund like say Elliott Investment. And that seems like that's, that's not going to be the case with regards specifically to Elliott Investment who used to be involved with AC Milan and did terrible things there. That, that will be whatever investment fund got involved, like Everton currently with 7-7 Sports, whatever it was like that, if, if they invested and the Glazers stayed as majority ownership with the investment coming from outside as a minority stake, but giving us a chance to rebuild Old Trafford and, and improve Carrington and whatever. That to me, now that it seems that Qatari bid isn't there, feels like the worst case scenario because you're retaining all the negatives of the Glazer ownership with an added negative of kind of cutthroat shareholders who will demand the biggest dividends possible without and, and try and uh, potentially, not necessarily, but potentially strip the club of certain assets. The alternative, I think, I can't see Ratcliffe taking over majority immediately. I think the alternative is Ratcliffe comes in as minority owner or Ineos do and at some point over the next couple of years buys the remaining shares and becomes the majority owner of United and a or he becomes majority owner but the Glazers retain a certain amount of shares so that they can have the privilege of attending games which they don't seem to take up very much anyway but the kind of status. N neither of those options are perfect but I know which I prefer. And that, that second model would really the only other club run similarly to that sort of big club in England over the last sort of decade has been Arsenal, where they have had these different owners owning yeah. different amounts of the club from Stan Kroenke to um, Ivan Gazidis. And I, I think now Stan Kroenke owns a bigger portion. Didn't he buy out the majority of those other smaller so, yeah. shareholders? And since you know, it, things have gone a lot better. 
Yes, exactly. So there is, there is precedent for it being run like that. And if the thing that, that is keeping Joel and Avram Glazer around is the status that comes with, with running United, which you've got to imagine is a big part of it. Because if, if it was purely about making money, there are much better ways that they could be out there making money than running Man United. Well, also, they've, you know, they've, they've just been offered about half a billion quid for it. Yeah. And if they don't sell, they don't get that money. And they might have it in, in theory as an asset, but they don't actually have that money. So yeah, it can't just be financial, which pains me to say it because I feel like that's what we thought for a long time. And that's why we thought if if the finances get bad, the Glazers will have to go. But actually there is, I, I don't understand their emotion towards United because it's clearly not one of a football fan. But it's never, I don't think it's ever been purely financial because if it was, like I said, even even as much of a cash cow as they've made Man United into, there are far better ways to go and make money out there than owning yeah. Man United. You know, the kind of money that they have made over the 20 years of owning the club has been significant, but I mean, you could have you could have invested that money in the stock market and have made five yes. or six times what they've made through owning United. So it's always been a combination of of yes, they are, they've come in and want to make money. That is clear that it isn't just about winning at all costs, but there is something else attached to it. And I think the obvious answer to that is the kind of status that comes with owning such a top asset in the world. And so you know, maybe Jim Ratcliffe coming in or Ineos coming in and and, and slowly kind of taking over and allowing Joel and Avram to potentially keep all or some of their shares would be enticing to them. I think if that option is what ends up happening, I think the real sticking point there is going to be the voting yeah. rights that come with those various shares. I can't remember the details off the top of my head, There's but two the shares types, yeah. that Joel and Avram Glazer have, yeah, there are two types of shares. One of them is worth more than the other, but the other one that is worth less comes with voting rights at a much higher degree than those common shares. And so that I think is going to be the real sticking point because it doesn't matter what percentage of the club the Glazers own in terms of the the value. If they're still the ones that hold all of the, the voting rights and decision-making power, then we're back at the same point we are now. Yes, really. but this evening for me is a positive one, undoubtedly. It's, I don't know what my relationship with Man United would have been if we were an arm of Qatari diplomacy. But it wouldn't be the same as it is now. So it's a relief. And whatever happens from here, hopefully something happens and this isn't just the Glazers carrying on because we all know what, how things happen under their ownership. But whatever happens from here, the various fan groups need to step up. And obviously the 1958 are specifically founded to hound out the Glazers. They need to explain, and I disagree with some of their tactics, I agree with some of them. Uh, they need to explain what, what their demands of a new owner will be. The Manchester United Supporters Trust need to put pressure to ensure there's some kind of fan involvement in the new structure of how United is run, whether it's a golden share, which seems unlikely, or just the ability to have some fan shares. And I would hope the Red Army would make some opinions known as well, but they seem fairly reluctant to do that unless it's about Mika Richards and Jamie Redknapp being on the pitch at Old Trafford. So hopefully some fan groups can step up because it's an opportunity and the likelihood is whatever these fan groups demand won't happen, but you never know and you need to try and make some change. So yeah. Anyway, did you think a year... A year ago, well, 11 months ago, did you think we'd, we'd still be here discussing this like we are? Probably not, no. I did. I mean, I think we both said at the time that we weren't convinced there there was going to be a sale. But I thought, 
we would have some clarity one way or the other by now. Yeah. Like I, I thought it was completely plausible that sometime, let's say over the summer, we would have had a statement saying, you know, the club isn't up for sale. Glazers will remain in charge. So in that sense, I did think we might still have to set the status quo, but I, I didn't think we'd still be in this scenario where it's still yeah. so unresolved. Yeah. Let's move on to our next question from Tony Ryan, who says, he's kind of saying after all the euphoria of, of the two injury time goals from McTominay, we've got the peace and quiet of the international break and, and an opportunity for all the elation to settle and to have some proper perspective. Do you think we'll be on an upward path now or the same recent up and down bumpy road we've had so far this season is effectively his question. I would lean towards the latter. I, I, I think we said when we recorded about the Brentford game, I didn't see this as it doesn't, I'm not confident this feels like the thing that will kickstart United season a week or so on. In fact, almost exactly one week on from McTominay running off Old Trafford and that brilliant, brilliant noise of celebration and a great day after a week on. I'm still buzzing about it when I think about it. It was a great Old Trafford moment, but I don't think it is the thing that kickstarts. And yeah, I agree, Tony. I think it will be up and down, bumpy road all season. It just feels like one of those years and there's no signs to suggest that it won't be like that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see enough from the Brentford game really to suggest there were going to be massive changes. I think the net, I mean, from now until the start of November is going to be the most crucial part of our season, I think, in determining how the rest of it is going to go. Because you come back from the international break, you have Sheffield United away, which on paper doesn't look like the most difficult game, but United make playing away difficult no matter who we're playing. We then play Copenhagen at home in the Champions League, which again, should be a fairly straightforward game, but now is an absolute must win because of the bad results so far in the Champions League. And then we play Man City, Newcastle yeah. in the League Cup, Fulham and then Copenhagen again. And I think if United can come through that period in decent shape, then we're, we're not too badly set up for the rest of the season because you're already getting towards the last stages of the of the League Cup at that point. If you can regain some league form, potentially get somewhat back on track in the Champions League or at least give us give ourselves a chance going into those last two games. But I, I just didn't see enough from the Brentford game to convince me that any of those underlying issues no. are going to change. No. Maybe we'll be surprised and maybe we'll come back and Ten Hag will have decided on a, you know, a completely new way of setting the team up and a, a brand new way of approaching some of just- these games, but I, I just didn't, I just don't see any evidence of it, of it happening. It just feels like we, we started to see some good signs at the beginning of the season, didn't we? The Wolves game was really disappointing, but, and, and the Spurs game was disappointing as well, but there were periods in that and uh, going up to Forest, terrible first few minutes, but then some good bits, but you couldn't really judge much on that game because of the crazy nature of being two goals down in four minutes. And then at Arsenal, that's what really gave us some belief because that, that was a different United to the one that lost to Arsenal the year before, 3-2, even though it was closer last season. And in those first four games, we were praising Andrea Nano because we we could see his leadership and his calmness on the ball and United were playing out a bit. But since then, Anana's dropped a series of clangers. We've stopped playing like that. And it, this relates to another question that Tony asked, what is Ten Hag's United playing style? I'm lost, he says. And it feels to me like Ten Hag is just trying to get through this period with all these injuries. Without Lissandra Martinez, he's unwilling to try the the kind of playing out from the back style that we were beginning to see tried. He's not willing to do that with Harry Maguire or Victor Lindelof. And Rafael Varane can do it with Martinez, but he doesn't seem to be 
relying on him to do it alongside Johnny Evans or Victor Lindelof, especially when you've not got Luke Shaw either. Uh, and Reckion's not there either and all of this. And it just, I just think it's so dependent on when these injured players comes back. Tenag doesn't seem willing to try, properly try his playing style without the right players, which makes sense because if we think about last season, he didn't want to do it then. He turned to, he realised things were bad in the first two games and then he turned, fully embraced pragmatism until he could sign a few more players who would be able to fit into the style that he wants. So it's not surprising. I don't think there is, at the moment, the style of play United are having is just kind of game by game trying to get some points on the board. And I don't think it's surprising. So I just can't see a way out of this except for injured players and, well, injured players returning. Is that good enough from Ten Hag? I I think it's hard to say at the moment. Yeah, I just don't don't have any faith really that we're going to pull some rabbit out of the hat and all of a sudden start looking like a completely different team. It seems like the last month in particular, really since the last international break, I guess, the team has looked increasingly desperate as, you know, the little sort of crumbs of positivity that you mentioned that we did take out of the first few games have dissipated. And that I think has just led to us playing even worse. As I mentioned last week, the one thing that I could maybe imagine the Brentford game doing is getting rid of some of that desperation because it has yeah. reduced the pressure on the team because to some even degree. Unexpectedly, I thought the performance against Galatasaray wasn't amazing, but obviously there was a terrible crumbling display at, at the end of the game. But for 60 or 70 minutes, I thought that United are playing good football here. Given relative to the injury situation, United are doing well here. There's some really nice play and we look confident. Now Galatasaray helped with that because they were so open. It was a very end-to-end game and, and that's kind of what Ten Hag's been trying to create, a transition game. But that was after we lost to Palace at home in the league, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah it was. So th- th- there have been these these periods where you think, United, if United can just do this for 90 minutes, we can get through this period. So it's not that as, it's not that there's no hope well, at even, all. Even the Bayern game, like we, we were dominant yeah. for the first 20 minutes yeah. of that game against Bayern. You know, and then you can see two really sloppy goals. One of them obviously an Onana disaster. And then come out in the second half, score three goals in the second half. We didn't, no. I don't think we played as well in the second half as we did for the first 20, 25 minutes. But there have been small periods where we have played but isn't that, relatively isn't that well. But the problem in that we played... Well, exactly. That's what I was just about to say. It's, it's hard to take much yeah, out of Yeah, but like we, our good periods have never been rewarded with goals. At Spurs, at yeah. Arsenal, at Bayern, Galatasaray, they were, but uh, yeah, I guess Galatasaray is, is the one occasion that they have been. Um, and then our bad periods, like against Brentford, when we're just lumping it, two goals. Bayern, when we... I don't think played very well, but just kind of managed to score a few in, in varying styles. I I think, I think really if you, if you're going to try and put a positive spin on this, which I'm not really inclined to do, but I think (laughs) if you're going to the way that, the way that you could try and look at this is to say there have been enough periods of games so far this season to show what this United team can do. If you can then marry that up with, Hoyland being back because in a lot of those games we mentioned Hoyland wasn't playing which should you would think help us finish off some of those chances if Rashford can regain some form and if now I was just looking at England's England's fixtures I know they played Italy uh, Australia they've got Italy on Tuesday night I was just thinking imagine how how helpful would it be if Rashford could just have a good 
good game for England and restore a bit of his confidence, get a bit of his swagger back. So I think really that the most positive reading is that happens with Rashford. You think that United have shown enough in those decent periods that we could be okay and that the Brentford result, even though the performance didn't change things, just decreases the pressure enough to kind of free up the players to go out there and perform without feeling quite so desperate if we do go a goal behind or if we're not quite playing brilliantly at the start of a game. Because that to me has felt the last month, as soon as one thing goes against us in a game, all of a sudden we're then really, really desperate. We're scratching our heads trying to figure out how we can get back into the game immediately. And that, that is the kind of thing that I think pressure, especially when you're playing at home, really, really does impact. And if, if that pressure is ramped down a little bit, yeah. maybe it gives the players a little bit more sort of freedom to play more naturally. Yeah, but it's interesting. I think- so I was, it's made me think of two things. One is that in those first games of the season, Arana, even when we were losing, for example, at Spurs, I remember what the part of the reason I was impressed by him was how how much of a leader he was for that team and how he was calming things down and saying, we're fine. Like we have so much of this game left to get a goal back. Don't worry. And then I was also thinking of, uh, I have now, I think we spoke last week about the Beckham documentary and I hadn't watched it. I have now managed to watch it. Uh, It was brilliant. And maybe we can talk a bit more about that later, but there's a moment in it where he says when he's just joined Real, I think they can, they go one nil down to Mallorca, I think. And he sees Ronaldo and Roberto Carlos just laughing as they go to kick off as they're 1-0 down and Beckham's fuming. He's obviously come from United where it's like, oh, you're 1-0 down, right, we need to switch on. And the attitude in that Real Madrid team was like, we're obviously going to score. That's just, don't worry about it. We'll we'll get a few goals. And I'm not suggesting United should be like that, but it it made me think of that. And it's kind of that that idea of you need this self-belief and confidence that frustratingly you would have thought this United team had developed last season in having a good year winning a trophy uh, beating several good teams in Manchester City and and Barcelona uh, among others and Arsenal and and everyone else and Liverpool and you would have thought they'd got that self-belief but they haven't at all so yeah you're absolutely right they need to get that because the, the whether it's complacency after scoring or pressure after conceding, they can't handle it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how things go on, but I can't say that I come back from this international break with too much confidence that things are going to ma- magically change around. No. In interesting news, given our chat at the start of this, I've just been sent a tweet from uh, from a mate that says, Jim Ratcliffe deal for 25% of Manchester United viewed as the first step in a gradual takeover set to be ratified at a board meeting in the coming week. That's from Mike Keegan of the Daily Mail we've kind of spoken about our thoughts on that and that, yeah, that's kind of what we thought might happen, but it's very interesting. This could be a pretty major week for United. And my brother always talks about this, that when the Saudis took over Newcastle, it wasn't as if they immediately, well, they couldn't because it it wasn't a transfer window. They couldn't immediately sign a load of players. It wasn't like their money had an immediate impact, but the, the difference in mood had such an impact on Newcastle and suddenly they started winning. Obviously they did change manager as well, but I don't think that's, I think that was kind of part of the fresh start rather than the the true big reason behind it. So if we're talking about changing the mood, restoring a bit of confidence, taking the pressure off at Old Trafford a bit, then this could be, this could help. Yeah. Should we move on to Marit's question unless you've got anything else on that? No, let's do it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So, Marek says, well, as, as we were talking about, based on our current performances, it's difficult to not be pessimistic he says he thinks this season is going to be very difficult and disappointing made more disappointed by the fact that it's exactly 10 years since Manchester United won our last Premier League title it's been a decade of ups but mainly downs to Marek it feels like a lost opportunity to build something new and special at United unfortunately current events seem to continue to support that feeling his question is how do you both see the last decade in Manchester United history what is our biggest achievement in the last decade, what feels to you as the greatest loss or failure? Do you want to start on this as a gen- we'll come on to the biggest and biggest achievement and worst loss in a second, but as as a decade, I mean, yeah, you can hear in my voice, but how does it feel to you? It feels like, well, obviously a massive disappointment on the whole, but more specifically, I think it feels like so many false dawns just over and over thinking that there might be some light at the end of the tunnel and some route back to not the old United because we shouldn't be trying to recreate everything that was back then, but some route back to being as as successful as the old United. And I think that is probably the biggest disappointment to me is that this hasn't been, I'd almost in some ways find it easier to stomach how disappointing this has been if if we'd just been, you know, sixth, seventh, fifth, every year since Sir Alex retired. And Easier it's to just, stomach, but not more enjoyable. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. But sort of from a big picture point of view, I'd almost find it less frustrating because it, that clearly just means we've never even been close. We've never figured out, you know, any steps towards getting back to, to where we want to be. But it hasn't been the case. And I think that's what I find so frustrating is yeah. that we have, we have felt primed on a couple of occasions to make that push and we've never managed to actually do it. Yeah, I think the the phrase light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's the, from a decade perspective, it's the very, very slow realisation that actually maybe there wasn't light at the end of the tunnel after all. And we were having some great times en route, but ultimately there's this kind of big dark beast sucking the colour and the light out of this tunnel. And in the end, it feels like, and, and look, it, it feels given the news this evening, like United might be moving on to a new era of sorts, but that this era really was, we weren't going to be as successful as we'd hoped. That being said, how do I see the last decade in United history? Ultimately, no football team has a right to win everything. United haven't been good enough, but we've had some pretty amazing moments and things have been, been bad, but like we've had the, privilege of seeing our team win several trophies in a really bad era and so I look back on the last decade as one of undoubtedly of underachievement and frustration and and 
anger towards the way that the club has been run. And, and as you say, the fact that all these false dawns and, and, and we had sometimes built foundations under various managers that, that could have been with better people around them, a better investment could have led to something great. So there are all those false dawns, but ultimately I'll look at this last de- uh, decade, maybe if I look in 30 years time and, and think about like a great day at Wembley watching us beat Newcastle to win the League Cup and some great moments in the Champions League and, and everything. So I'm, I'm kind of torn. If I was commenting as like a journalist, then yeah, you, you would emphasize how terrible this has been and how much of an indictment this has been on, on the senior figures at Manchester United and, and how much of a disgrace this has been. But as a fan, I, I'm a little more torn because ultimately, if it had been truly terrible for 10 years in a row, like you say you support your team through thick and thin, but if it had been truly terrible for 10 years in a row, then I wouldn't be going every week. Yeah, I think to your point before about it makes you realise that there might not have been light at the end of the tunnel. I, we, we mentioned this recently, I can't remember what the context was, but Man United's history in some ways is a funny one because almost all of our success has come in two very concentrated eras. Under, three, three, thank oh, okay, you very three. Much. Po- the 1908, anyway. 1911 team, 1908-1911 team was a, a fantastic team. And if you want to hear yeah. more about it, buy Harry's book. <laughs> um, yeah, just drop it on like, But yeah, and, you're and, right. And those two eras were defined mainly by two titans of this football club, it's Matt Busby and Sir Alex Ferguson. And I think at various times it's felt because of that, you're almost searching for who that next person is going to be. And I think part of the realisation of the last 10 years for me has been that there might not be a person that is able to do all of that almost on their own at this point. And obviously it was never just Matt Busby and Alex Ferguson and Ferguson. There was a whole apparatus of people behind the scenes allowing them to, to get all the success that they did. But ultimately it did feel like it all stemmed from those people as figureheads and as sort of leaders of the club. And I think, like I said, for me, the last 10 years has definitely been almost like a realisation that it's probably not going to be just an Jose Mourinho or an, or an Eric Ten Hag or, an, or Louis van Gaal or even a Pep Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp. It, it's going to need so much more than that because of the demands that modern football places on a football club. It, it can't all stem really just from one person. And we, we're kind of seeing that now with, with, with Ten Hag in that he is probably more entrenched in terms of his decision-making ability than any manager has been since Sir Alex Ferguson. And we're in some ways paying the price a little bit for that now. And I think that has been a major part for me of being a fan for these last 10 years and and realising how different it needs to be for the next period of success for Man United. Yeah. And I was joking when I mentioned the, well, yeah, I was playing when I mentioned the 1908-11 team, but it's actually relevant to what you're saying because Tenag is the 27th manager of Man United including interim so I think I think that we've had three interims in total so more like the 24th manager of Manchester United only three of them and we're the most successful team in English football only three of our managers have won the top flight title yeah so even going back way deep into Manchester United history to just after we changed from Newton Heath this has always been a club defined and led by individuals. And I mean, I say that having written a book about kind of the other men 
who made United. So, and, and a car for the reason is to give pay tribute to those who kind of set it up so that Busby could have success. And the same is true with Ferguson. You've got people like Eric Harrison who were already doing fantastic work before Ferguson arrived. Or in the case of Busby, you've got like Walter Crickman and James Gibson and Louis Rocker who, who had begun that work before Busby and Murphy turned up. But ultimately, what has dragged United from challenges to great teams has been these individuals throughout history. So, yeah, I, but that, that clearly, I don't think that holds in modern football. I think Jurgen Klopp is probably the closest we've seen at Liverpool. But when his brilliant recruitment team at Liverpool disbanded, it's it's taken, I mean, they haven't won anything since. They look good again, but I wonder whether they'll be good enough to do what they were doing under Klopp. And that was challenging for the title every year and reaching Champions League finals and winning both competitions. So it doesn't feel relevant to modern football anymore. And that's a problem for United, given that history that we're talking about. Yeah. Anything else or, or have you got, can you think of our biggest achievement of the last 10 years? Well, in a historical context, it's probably winning the, the Europa League just because winning a European trophy of any stature happens so infrequently. Yeah. And it, it completed the completed the puzzle. I remember that great. I, th- yeah. I actually think this cover was used both on the United programme and on United We Stand, but that, that uh, drawing on United We Stand that was like the puzzle and the final piece going in, I liked. And now we just need to finish eighth this season so that we can have a crack at the Conference League next year. Conference, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, historically you're right. The, the other one, and again, I'm playing here, but uh, one of the biggest achievements at United is supporters getting the game called off against Liverpool in May 2021. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. other club does that, and it felt like the final, the final mission of a certain section of United support, and a very successful one as well, and with genuine impacts. Unfortunately, it feels like some of the changes that were promised as a result have been reined in, but it was genuinely that is a incredible thing to do to get a Premier League game called off the biggest game in English football called off it's that that's kind of that will be one of the defining things that people look back on in 40 years time at this decade of United um what are the great achievements on the pitch um (laughs) it's difficult isn't it well like I mean like you mentioned winning as many trophies as we have even in such a dire period is Quite impressive to but some Which degree. of those trophies has been the biggest achievement? Because if we think about the League Cup last season, that's a fairly easy, yeah. relatively easy draws, all home and not the toughest opposition. Although some hard games. Uh, the Europa League, again, pretty easy opposition going right through that. The League Cup that season, did we, is that the one where we had to beat City in the semi-final? Or am I misremembering? This is the Mourinho League Cup. Yeah. Uh, uh, but Southampton in the final, again, it's not... The, I don't think it was City in the, in the semi-final. Right. I can't even remember who it was. No, I can't. But uh, I don't think it was City. No, you might be right. Maybe we played them earlier in the... Anyway, the, the, the cups that we've won haven't have been the hardest runs. The hardest run I can remember is when Ole took us to wins against Arsenal and Chelsea in consecutive rounds in the cup. And then... I can't remember what happened after that. I, in terms of what feels as the greatest loss or failure, Villarreal is is clearly clearly yeah. up there. Sevilla under Mourinho in the Champions League felt very felt like a marker in United history when the manager came out after and said, "This is you ask about football heritage. This is United's heritage is losing in a knockout stage of the Champions League." <laughs> that felt that felt like a marker yeah. and a great failure getting knocked out of the groups by Wolfsburg 
under Van Hal yes. was a really, really yeah. low point. Yeah. Actually, and the whole run under Van Hal, when we, didn't we go seven games without scoring or something? That was probably the worst. The, I mean, it's tough, isn't it? Because the end to Ole's first season, like the half season, was really bad. Yeah. The Runnick end to his season was atrocious. But in terms of, I think, the, the darkest period for United in terms of results and kind of what it meant to the season overall was that bit under Van Hal in December 2015, and, just and before we started point. recording this, where we kind of, we seem to be breaking records yeah. every week. We lost to Stoke, lost to West Brom, lost to Norwich, all at Old Trafford. And it was terrible, yeah. Well, and to your earlier and then the point podcast about, began. <laughs> about the fact that the last 10 years have remained pretty good as a fan. We've been given some great moments. That was probably the point where watching United was the least bearable. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a sobering thought, this, isn't it? I mean, there's been a few point, points like that, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's more sobering. It's, like I knew about, I, like I remember all these failures. I think it's more sobering when you say, what's our biggest achievement of the last 10 years? And all of them feel tainted by something. By the fact, that, I think by the fact, as we are saying earlier, that these were false thorns. I think probably the greatest, it, what feels like the greatest failure is that we didn't build on the Mourinho season where we finished second. I think that's the closest... It, would you say yeah. that's the closest we've been to becoming a, a, a more regular title challenger? Had Mourinho got the players he wanted that summer? Had, had Harry Maguire signed, maybe? I, I think that and the, uh, after Ollie's second season. But I think with Mourinho, you probably had more faith that if we did have the team to go and challenge Man City, you ha- I, I at least had more faith that Mourinho would, would do the, the job as yeah. a manager to get us there. There was always that nagging doubt about Oli. And so I think Mourinho not building on that platform probably is the biggest failure. Yeah. And the, the other one in a similar vein is is not winning a trophy with Solskjaer. That feels like a huge failure too yeah. because that feels like such a huge asterisk on his time in charge. Yeah. What we did have with Solskjaer and this links into our next question was PSG. Now that obviously isn't United's biggest achievement of the last 10 years, but it was a good moment in 2019. And Ted asks about it. Ted Popham says, with poor Champions League performances recently, it left me thinking of better times, Paris Saint-Germain away in 2019. It's amazing how different the lineups are in four and a half years. So can you do a pickup game with that team against PSG in 2019 and the most recent Champions League lineup against Galatasaray? You each get Rashford as he's the only starter in both games. So, Essentially, we've done a couple of these on Patreon mailbags before. Pickup game means there's two squads effectively and Jack and I both get to pick an 11 uh, and we alternate. Are we going to do the ABBA format? Yeah, I think so. We probably should, shouldn't we? Okay. Uh, and to, uh, as how, in, how, for how everyone listening, decide who starts? <laughs> uh, good question. <laughs> um, uh, let me see if I've got a coin. You you talk, I'll find the, the coin. I'll, to give everyone a reminder of the lineups, so against PSG in 2019, the lineup was De Gea, Shaw, Lindelof, Smalling, Bailly, Young, McTominay, Fred, Pereira, Rashford, Jesus. and Lukaku. Yeah, there's a lot of injuries and suspensions at the time. Yeah. And then the lineup for the recent game against Galatasaray is Onana, Dallo, Varane, Lindelof, Amrabat, Hannibal, Casemiro, Mount, Bruno Fernandes, and Rashford, and Hoyland. Okay. I, so I, I think a couple of clarifying questions we should sort out before we start. Two things. Where players are playing out of position in these teams, so say Amrabat playing at left back, 
And by playing, I think you can have them wherever you want. Okay, I think it's more personal. And then secondly, are we taking these players at the level they were at the time or at their best? So, for example, if you're picking De Gea, are you getting 2017 De Gea or are you getting peak De Gea? I sorry, twenty nineteen De Gea would be. You can have them at the the best they were at in that season. Okay, or that calendar year maybe. So, for example, Casemiro. That Casemiro is kind of one of the hard ones, isn't it? So we say calendar year because then with because otherwise we're not we're not going to pick any of the players in the lineup against Galatasaray because they've they've all been shit this season. Yeah, yeah, so calendar enough. year. So you're looking at like Casemiro at his best at United or Bruno Fernandez at his best this year. Okay, I found a coin. Would you like heads or tails? Sure. You're just you're just gonna have to trust me when I when I tell you what the result I'll is. Take heads. It's tails. <laughs> uh, I'll let you go. Oh, convenient. I'll let you go first. Okay. In that case, God, this is not not easy. I will take Bruno Fernandez. Yeah, I probably should have gone first. So we both have Rashford. Yeah. According to Ted's rules. So. So we need to fill in ten okay. players each. Right. So the next best player in in the calendar year that they were playing in, I think Lukaku was quite good at, at that time, wasn't he? It's kind of he scored two. Well, it was better. It was better the year. If we're talking about calendar year 2019, he was definitely past his best at United at that point. I'm going to take Luke Shaw. He did play quite well in that game. Yeah, I'm going to take Shaw. Okay, and Casemiro. Okay, so you've got two now. In that case, I am going to take. God, I'm trying to remember what Fred was like back in 2019. Did he ever really change? I feel like he's just been he's been himself every every single game. But if I'm taking if I'm taking the best version yeah. of Fred, that's not so, that's not so bad, I guess. Well, I will take Varane okay. for sure, and then I'm trying to decide between Mount, Amrabat, Fred. Hmm. Annoyingly, Amrabat's World Cup performances wouldn't count. Would I, f- they? I feel like because that. that's really the mo- the the. Feel- All right, well, if, if I'm t- if I'm getting World Cup Amrabat, I will take him as another midfielder. Okay, so as things stand, Jack has Varane, Amrabat, Fernandez, Rashford, and I have Shaw, Casemiro, Rashford. To add to that, I'm going to take did did Twanzebe not start in that PSG game? I know he started a couple of years later, didn't he? Yeah, when we played him in the group stages. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, gets tough from here. I'm going to take Hoyland just because I like him at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I could do with some creativity in there, but it's it's funny when you look at it, you realise all the creativity out, out of both teams, there is only one player and it's Bruno Fernandes. Yeah, exactly. Which probably sums things up a bit. Uh, I'm going to take Dallow at his best this year. Okay. okay yeah. Your two. I guess actually another another thing that I've just... We should probably both give ourselves Lindelof because he also started. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. All right, I'll give us both Lindelof. We could argue over which one we want, but they've both yeah. got their faults and both have their strengths. So let's not bother. Okay, so then, right, so you're two. I'm gonna first. I'm gonna complete my midfield. I'm gonna take Mason Mount. Okay, and then Strong midfield. Oh, see, the thing is, you taking Shaw and Dallow has really scuppered me because I now have no one that can play at left back unless well, I play exactly. Oh, actually, I could play, I could take Ashley Young and play him at left back. Is that really yeah. a, a road that I want to go down? I don't know. I'm also I'm thinking about trying to pick a goalkeeper, but to be honest, I I couldn't I tell you which point. one of them I would rather want: 2019 De Gea yeah. or current. What's well, if it's calendar year? Actually, 
I will take Inter Milan, <laughs> Andre Onana. Fair enough, but De Gea was good enough. So, um, all right, so you've got one more as well. No, I just took uh, Mount as oh, yeah. well. Okay, uh, well, I'm not going to take De Gea yet because obviously I can just have him at the end unless Jack wants two goalkeepers. Be very united. You can have three goalkeepers on the bench as we seem to do a lot of the time at the moment. So at the <laughs> moment, I've got Dalo Lindelof, Shaw, Casemiro, Rashford, Hoyland. So I need, I'm one away from completing a defence, but the only option left is Smalling. So I'm just going to leave him till the end because Jack has his defence. Well, his centre-back's complete. So... Uh, midfield's where I'm struggling. <laughs> I'll take I'll take Fred with Casemiro. Get that Brazilian midfield. Then I've got yeah. a front two of Rashford and Hoyland. I'm just thinking if I can have Lukaku yeah. as well as that. Um, I might just take him for, yeah. Because Lukaku had some lovely crosses from the right wing. I remember thinking he was our best crosser of a ball. So Lukaku crossing for Hoyland in the middle, Rashford on the left. That's my two taken. That is... Europe. Royally frustrated. <laughs> You've just taken Lukaku there. I was doing what you were playing with the hey, I was just going to leave well, him to the end. So now, because yeah. now I'm forced to play Rashford up front, which now means I need a winger and two fullbacks. Do I, do I dare take Ashley Young? I feel like that's just asking for trouble. I think you're going to Maybe I'll him. take Hannibal and stick him out there. So I'm going to take Hannibal because I can either play him out wide or play him in midfield and move Mount out wide. I think I've got to take Young and I'll figure out where I'm going to play him at some point. He might have to go left back, to be honest. Okay. So hold on, what were your two just then? So Hannibal and Young. So the entire current team has gone. That's interesting that it's gone first. Uh, You've got a lot of midfielders. So the players left, for everyone listening, are De Gea, Smalling, Bailly, McTominay and Pereira. I've got a, I know De Gea and Smalling are going to be my two others. So I just need one more and I'm going to complete the Brazilian trio. Am I, am I really going to take Andreas Pereira? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember what McTominay was like in 2019. I, I can't really remember. But I, just I don't remember. think he was that different to what he is now, really. But I remember Andreas Pereira having a couple of surprisingly good games and scoring an occasional screamer. So he's going... Was that the, the, the year game. he scored against Southampton? Yeah. So I'm then going to take uh, Smalling and that leaves... Should I just take De Gea now since you're not going to take... Yeah, go on then. So then I... All right, so my team's complete. So then I'm left with Bailly. Yeah. I probably should have taken Bailly, yeah. to be honest, but oh well. You're left with Bailly and McTominay. Is that right? I think so. Is that right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so you have an Amrabat left back. I've got some sorting out to do. I don't think I am. I think I'm going to have Young at left back. Okay, so I'll, I'll go with my team is De Gea, Dallo, Lindelof, Smalling, Shaw, Casemiro, Fred, Andreas, Rashford, Hoyland, Lukaku. It's it's not the team you want, is it? <laughs> I mean, I thought, I'm not sure that mine but is, is really. Is it any better than yours? So I've got Onana, no. Young at left back. I'll have... Ferran and Bailly at centre-back and Lindelof at right-back. And I'll go for a, a midfield two of McTominay and Amrabat. Then a narrow attacking midfield trio of Mount, Bruno and Hannibal and then Rashford up top. I think your team probably, yeah. I think your team probably shades it because you've got less players playing out of position. Yeah, and more, well, I, I think the main thing to come out of that is the current team went a lot quicker than the 2019 team which is a good sign. Unsurprising, perhaps, as well. All right, interesting. Yeah, I think I think my team would just win. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I think if I'd have managed to get yeah. Lukaku instead of, let's say, McTominay, 
I'd back I'd back my team, but I think you take it. It yeah. was very smart. Okay, let's move on. Uh, in fact, let's have a very quick break for our non-patrons, and we'll be back in just a second. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, let's have our final few patron questions. Ethan says, and let's try and make this quick, rank the six managers we've had since Sir Alex, so Moyes van Aal. Mourinho, Solskjaer, Rennick, Ten Hag. Let's start at the bottom, should we? Who's going to be bottom, Ralph Rennick or David Moyes? I don't think there's any debate around this, is there? <laughs> David Moyes. Okay, Moyes, then Rennick. I think I agree because of what Moyes took over. Yeah, exactly. that was exactly my thing. I actually think Rennick probably, as a, as a manager, I think he was correct in so many things he said, but I think Rennick actually did a worse job. In the end, his results were just appalling yeah. because he basically gave up and the players gave up as a result but yeah overall impact on United I think Moyes set us back many years I think Ranić didn't well he obviously didn't I mean, because Tenar came the, in the way, the way I would put it is that Moyes took over a title winning team albeit one that was very ageing and finished seventh and finished seventh <laughs> Ranić took over a team that was already going to be finishing sixth and yeah. finished wherever he finished seventh it's, no no he finished sixth it is incredible I finished sixth that in 10 years, to go back to the question from earlier, in 10 years, our worst finish is still the first post-Ferguson season under David Moyes. It's seven. It's ridiculous. So, uh, Moyes bottom, then Ranić. I would then go, oh, Van Hal. Yeah, I think Van Hal was sort of in a tier of his own for me. Yeah, because there was some good... It, ne- it, never, felt like, it never felt like we got close to building a platform under Van Hal, personally. No. And the difference with Ole is that Ole, I don't think we felt that close as well. I think we did at times, but I think we were wrong on that. I just think we got caught up in it a lot, but it was enjoyable. So Ole would be next, then Mourinho. Are we putting Ten Hag top? I I would put Mourinho top. Okay. Yeah, I guess the problem is it's hard to put someone top who you know how it ended. Which we don't know what's happening with tonight. Yeah, exactly. Because that always is going to spoil exactly. how you look so, at it. But if I'm, I, if I'm looking at this as who, who do I think was closest to getting United back to where they were, I would put Mourinho top. Yes. But Ten Hag has done the most clearing out. Yes. I think it's very hard with Ten Hag at this stage. So if we removed him, just for now, you're putting him If we wanted to be fair to Ten Hag, and we wanted to base all of these managers on their first full season I think he'd probably be top ahead of Mourinho his first full season I think his was better than Mourinho's because it was Mourinho's second season where he came second and won the League Cup and the Europa League yeah okay 
The related question from Steve says, if you somehow got David Moyes, Van Aal, Marino, Salsa and Rannick in a room together where NDAs, as in non-disclosure agreements, became redundant and they have to tell the truth, what one United-based question would you ask them each individually? I like how he's made it be Man United, so like we can't ask him for like his fav- favourite pie or anything like that. Should we start with David Moyes? I'm just, I'm imagining these managers signing NDAs, preventing them from telling us what pies they like. (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah, they probably, that's probably not included. Uh, For for anyone who cares, the best pie at Man United is the United pie, which is steak chilli cheese. It's fantastic. It's very hot. As people know, it will burn your mouth unless you give it a full half. But yeah, it's a good pie. David Moyes... It's it's really hard. It's such a good question. I feel like I could think about this for years and still not come up with like the perfect one. I'd like to know what Moyes was promised when he joined with regards to like Tony Cruz and Gareth Bale, for example. And it's quite an open question. So hopefully he would ramble and release many truths. Is there, is there anything, anything more specific you can think of? Maybe did you feel like the players had faith in you from the beginning? Felt like that faith dissipated very quickly, but I yeah, wonder if so- there was any... Is there, is there any player in particular you felt undermined yeah. you? But, but I think that would apply to every single manager. Yeah, but I think with Moyes, there is a particular, there's a particularly strong case to ask that, I think, because he was directly coming off the back of Ferguson. I'd also like to know, this wouldn't be it, but what were your first impressions of Edward Wood? Because for David Moyes, a man who worked like his fucking balls off, to progress up the football pyramid, did brilliant work at Preston North End, put in just like the hardest of yards at Everton and did such a good job. And I don't, like, he clearly wasn't the right choice for United. But at the time when he was given that job, no one was saying David Moyes didn't deserve this. He had done the shift to then be presented with your new boss, Edward Wood. I wonder what he thought. I can probably imagine what he thought. But yeah, it would be interesting. Solskjaer, this was the one where we, we were discussing pre-recording that this is kind of the easiest. Did you want to sign Ronaldo? And Andy Mitten asked him this in an interview with The Athletic recently. He seemed to hint at no. Well, he seemed to hint at that he, he certainly hadn't asked for it, and but it felt too good to turn. It, it felt impossible to turn down, maybe not too good to turn down. But a, a, a very straight, honest answer would be would be good. I'd also be interested to ask a bit about more transfer stuff about Jude Bellingham and Erling Haaland as well. And yeah, again, did you, which players did you, did you feel undermined you at the end? Yeah. And I, I think there's, I mean, it's all related to the transfer question still, but did he have, like, did he truly believe that you could catch Man City with a couple of signings going your way, whether it was Haaland instead of Ronaldo yeah. or Bellingham? I mean, I'm sure the answer would be yes, but I would be interested in, if he had a truth serum, in, in him, I'd be interested in hearing genuinely what the belief level was like. Yeah, yeah. Mourinho, I think Randnick's also easy. I'd like to know at what point he was told he wasn't wanted at United. I'd like to know which players disappointed him and which players he actually recommended to the club and which he was told he couldn't sign in January, for example. Did he actually tell United to sell Ronaldo in January? All of the above. I think Van Aal and Mourinho are a lot harder, partly because they've spoken more about their time at United since. I mean, there's plenty you could ask Mourinho about his time at the club. Again, like that pivotal summer where he wanted players like Harry Maguire and where we did feel like we had that platform. But I think there's also just maybe a general question of how poorly run is United compared to all the other teams that he's managed. That is something I would be interested in, in hearing. Yeah, 
that's yeah, that's a good one. A full kind of takedown of <laughs> yeah. the people involved. I guess Van Hal would be interested on that subject as well, given the many clubs like yeah. Bayern, Barca, Ajax. That probably, yeah, applied to, to them both. I mean, the other couple that come to mind is maybe a, a little bit about his exit, just how unceremonious that was. Although I feel like we know quite a lot about it already. And then another one that I'd be interested in is given all of the pressure that he, I mean, we just brought it up as one of the lowest points of the last decade that period where it was such turgid football under Van Gaal, was he ever tempted to move away from his general sort of footballing philosophy because of the pressure from fans and the club? Yeah. And did he really have email red receipts on for every player? (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd be interested to know that. And what his favourite moment at United was, as in that wouldn't be number one, absolutely. But if we were having a chat, I'd be interested to know. Yeah, I loved Van Gaal for quite a while. He just... He made. He didn't make his football fun, but his press conferences were very. Fun. Uh, okay, that's a great question, and one we might come back to if we can think of any more because we've been thinking for quite a while now, and we, and we had a chat before as well. Just like it's hard to hone down exactly what you want to know. I feel like I need to remind myself the of the yeah. era of the Van Gaal era, and I'd have so many questions to ask. Yeah, Moyes would be interested on Rooney as well. Yeah, I'm sure if you went back and watched either like a season review or reminded yourself of, of all the games, more things would come would come to mind. Okay, uh, we're, we're nearly wrapping up now. Ted Popham says, and this will be a quick one, would you rather win the League Cup again this season if it meant sacrificing league form and European places? It's kind of hard to know without the context, isn't it? If, if it meant like we finished 11th, no. <laughs> it, I, it also, I, I'm really torn on this one because when we've had questions like this in the past, I always emphasise like... You cannot beat winning a trophy in the day and the feelings that that gives you. Like, say United got four amazing away draws en route to winning at Wembley and we beat several big teams en route and it was actually really exciting and we beat City in the final or something. Then it becomes a lot harder, doesn't it? So you, you need the context, but instinctively my answer is no. I, th- I think for Ten Hag, you need to see progress in the That's league. exactly what I was just about to say. It depends for me what... Ten Hag's future would be in these scenarios too because yeah. if if not getting in the European places means that Ten Hag would be gone then I think getting into Europe would would probably be more important not because I think Ten Hag would deserve to stay if our form dropped off that much he, he wouldn't I just don't think at this point that going to another new manager would be productive for the club really yeah agreed we need to stick this one out Final question. It's not on United. From Anthony Gertz, who says, as an Australian, I've been able to find some enjoyment in watching Ange Ball at Tottenham while United have been subpar. He says, blasphemous, I know. To be clear, I did not enjoy the 2-0 defeat. It's quite surreal seeing a man who once managed my local club in Melbourne now sitting at the top of the Premier League with back-to-back Manager of the Month awards. You mentioned Melbourne, Anthony. I was looking at where most of our listens have come from over this calendar year. Melbourne is in like the top four cities, I think. Um, Our very latest episode was by far the most listens was in Melbourne, ahead of Manchester, ahead of London, ahead of Dublin, which I I found interesting. I don't know if anyone else were. And a wonderful city too. Have you been? Yeah, yeah, for three or four days, went there in Sydney. And I've got to say, Sydney gets all the attention, but Melbourne's much nicer. I'd love to go to both. I've never been like that desperate to go to Australia. I recognise it's like an amazing place but I just I've always thought oh, I want to go to South America or Vietnam Cambodia where, where I haven't been yet or India but I I want to go to the MCG 
and that's kind of like the driving factor for why I want to go to Australia. I'd I'd love to watch an Ashes yeah. test. Yeah. At the MCG. Yeah. That's that's kind of bucket list material. Yeah, that that or watching the uh going on a Lions tour with the rugby is a proper bucket yeah. list thing for me. Anthony's question is what have you made of Andrew's start to life in the Premier League and how far do you think he could take this Spurs team based on these first couple of months? Well, I've been impressed. I think he as everyone seems to agree, seems like a sound guy. <laughs> How far do I think he can take this Spurs team? I'm hesitant because I feel like managers can have very good starts with clubs like Tottenham. Translating it to the next level is is very difficult. And how long do some of these Spurs players have at the top? How long is Son going to continue to be great like this? He's obviously been absolutely talismanic in the absence of Harry Kane. So I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know, you might have watched, I've, I've watched a fair bit of them and obviously against United, but you might have watched a little bit more. Yeah, I've watched quite a lot. My fiance is a Spurs fan, so uh, yeah. it, it, see quite a lot of them in our house. And I, I've been really, I, after the first game against Brentford, I said at the time that I thought watching Spurs this year was going to be a fun ride, but they were going to ship a lot of goals because they were very, very open that day. And to be fair to Ange, he's, he's clearly sort of shored things up at the back without losing too much of, what they can do going forward. You know, I, I think they are riding a bit of a wave at the moment and I, I don't think they're title contenders, but I think Champions League is certainly an achievable target for them. And I think what you've got to give Ange credit for, like what you're saying, Harry, there about, you know, long-term, I think one of the issues is about attracting players because you've seen other managers at Spurs get a decent platform, but they still don't quite have the pull of some of the other clubs around them. But I think... What you, I'm that, so, that's not really what Spurs need. Well, I, I think it is if you want to... High profile names. Well, not necessarily high profile, but you're going to need to be able to attract good young talent to come in. Yeah. And yeah. they're able to attract good talent, but not the best talent. And I think if, you know, if the goal with Ange is to become a, a title contending team, I think they are going to need that. But what, I think what Ange has done so well so far is the Spurs team isn't that different to the previous season, really. You know, Kane's gone, which makes them a lot worse. Yeah. And then... You know, the other signings have been good, but nothing crazy. You know, you've got Vicario in goal. That's a, about it in terms of like major, major signings that's still without Bentacur to come back. So I think if Ange can can do this kind of thing with a group of players that you wouldn't say, like I'd say on paper, Spurs' squad is probably the seventh best in yeah. the league. So I've, you've got to be impressed with what he's doing with the resources he has. And it's, and it's fun to watch. So and he he's very honest in his press conferences. I think as a fan, I can see why... Spurs fans would feel very invested in their club, especially having just gone Absolutely, through Mourinho yeah. and then Conte. Yeah, I, I speak to Spurs fans who grew up in North London, so I know plenty of them and it, it's that that they come back to. It's just, I'm enjoying yeah. supporting my team again. I don't have to pretend to like the manager as we felt and they felt with Mourinho and they also felt with Antonio Conte. And I think the the, the great credit to Pastor Coglu is that he arrived at a club in some dire straits or their supporters felt like they were in dire straits and in a couple of months has taken the pressure off and that gives him the platform to now he's got the credit from supporters they believe in him and that means that he might be able to make a real success of this and I'm just happy for someone like that to get an opportunity at this level having worked their way up from like the very bottom it's it's good to see and yeah just as long as Tottenham don't get... It's just something different as well. I feel like for a, for a number of years, Premier League managers yeah, yeah. have all felt 
kind of the same. And it's fun to have someone who's trod a very different path to get where he is now and is, you know, offering something different every week and not only in how he sets up his team, but in press conferences and stuff, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. Even as a, as a non-Spurs fan, it's just been fun to watch it happen. Absolutely. Okay, we better wrap up. There's been some uh, brilliant questions there from our patrons. I'm still thinking about the one from Steve about <laughs> what question. Uh, it's going to be on my mind for for weeks and hopefully finally I'll be able to give you a properly good answer. Patrons write in as well with what your questions would be and we'll, we'll read out some of the good ones on the next episode. Absolutely. Please do. And thank you very much for your support patrons. It's massively appreciated and allows us to do episodes like this, which is uh, a real treat. Before I go, the final thing to say is we're recording this on Saturday in two days time on Monday, the 16th of October. My book, The Men Who Made Manchester United, is out with Pitch Publishing. It'll be available on Amazon, on Waterstones, on bookshop.com, on in WH Smiths, in loads of places, hopefully, if the publishers pull their figure out. Um, but it'll definitely be available online. You can pre-order it now uh, for, I think, a cut price on most places. So you might want to pre-order it before it comes out, at which point the price will probably go to its its full price. Yeah, it's exciting. I picked up just before I sat down to record this, um, I picked up my author copies, 10 of them. And yeah, it's nice to finally see it in its, in its physical copy. If you haven't listened to this before and haven't heard me describe what it's about, it's basically about the eight pioneering men who laid the foundations for the modern Manchester United, salvaged from the ashes of the Newton Heath Club and, and created this global sporting institution defined by youth, courage and success and, and set Sir Matt Busby up to be this incredible titan of English football. It's been really fun to write and it's nice to finally have it out. And I know lots of listeners of the podcast have already pre-ordered it. Thank you for giving it a chance and spending your hard earned money on it. And yeah, I really hope people will enjoy it. But even if they don't, I enjoyed writing it. So that's okay. Jack, who are we playing next? Is it Sheffield, Sheffield United, United away? It is. Saturday night. Sheffield United away. Saturday night. A horrendous time for a kickoff. Yeah. Could be a good away day, but it'll be a pain in the ass to get back. Let's not talk about an upcoming United <laughs> game. Let's just carry Yeah, fuck that. Let's just get, carry on and enjoy the international break. <laughs> Who knows? We might be back before before that game because there could be some pretty big news. This might be a new era of Manchester yeah, United. It so, could be a big week. Yeah. I yeah. hope there's no one listening to this. It's like, you know, oh, I'm just getting into football, you know, just trying to become a Man United fan. Seems like they're a good team. <laughs> and we're saying like, yeah, don't don't bother thinking about them. It's not worth yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Don't bother thinking about them. What's been, how would you sum up the last 10 years? Really, really shit. Um, <laughs> can you name our greatest achievement of the last 10 years? No, all of them have been tainted by the failure which has followed. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, fingers crossed for a new era starting soon. Yeah. And ultimately... Our last game wasn't great. And I still, when I hear the noise or I think about it or see the goal come up on social media or whatever, you get that buzz again because football is brilliant. So for our reaction throughout the week to whatever news is going to happen with United and hopefully there'll be some positive injury news as well, you can find Jack on Twitter at... At UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. And yeah, final shameless plug, my book's out on Monday. The men who made Manchester United buy it if you like I hope you'll enjoy it and if you want to become a patron and 
be able to ask these questions for our Patreon mailbag to get early access to ad-free episodes, you can do so for as little as a pound fifty a month. Go to our Twitter. There'll be some info there. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening to this extended Patreon mailbag episode of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. We really appreciate your support, particularly from you patrons. And to everyone, have a fantastic week. Goodbye. Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.